Good day, Sally Bonani, on this day two of an amazing session, which continues our series in examining African decolonial health. Thank you so much for joining us once again to those who were with us yesterday and to those who are joining us for the first time today. My name is Tanya Charles. I'm hailing from a small town, Ebulawayo, in Zimbabwe. I'm currently based in Oxford in the United Kingdom, but I'm feeling the warmth of Africa in the room. It's an honor and a privilege to be your MC for today and to take you through our program as we look at creating a new health system. It is my great privilege to introduce the co-conveners that have made this event possible. My dear friends and colleagues, Shanaz Munchi and Lance Luskita, who both worked so hard over many, many months to collectively build and create this event. So starting with Lance, they are a PhD candidate in health systems and policy research at the School of Public Health and Family Medicine at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. Lance is a health systems and policy research scholar, a queer activist, and their PhD explores health systems responsiveness to queer users in primary health care settings. Lance is also a Senior Athletic Fellow for Health Equity at Tokano, as well as being part of the HSG Global Network, which has also supported this event today. I'm also very excited to introduce the lovely Shanaz Munshi. She is the Research Project Manager of the WITS Shaiham Research Program on Health Inequality and the Social Determinants of Health Project. She's also a Senior Atlantic Fellow like Lance in Health Equity based at Tokano in South Africa as well as an activist researcher, hmm. she'll tell us more about that, with a particular interest in feminist, decolonial scholarship and praxis. Shanaz is an occupational therapist with 10 years of experience serving vulnerable and marginalized communities in South Africa and the UK. So thank you to Lance and Shanaz, as well as the partners at Atlantic Institute, Chesai, the Bits University, Chekano, and of course HSD for investing in this timely and urgent conversation on African health systems. I'd like to hand over to you to officially open and officially welcome us for day two. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tanya, for that very beautiful introduction and for leading us into day two of this very exciting convening. So greetings, everyone. Can we all start with a deep breath? As the breath brings us into proximity with each other, and as the world's attention has been brought to the breath, we warmly welcome you to this gathering and conversation that seeks to grapple with the intersection between decoloniality and African health systems. For us, decolonial thinking is a segue to advancing responsive and socially just health systems on the continent. This project was inspired by the Roads and Fees Must Fall movements in South Africa the African intersectional feminist and queer movements in our respective institutions and communities we are part of and represent. The breathlessness, the gasping of breath, the urgency to breathe of these movements flow within all of us today. We thus situate ourselves in the history of thinkers, practitioners, advocates, poets, storytellers, interested in doing decolonial work on the continent. Towards the end of last year, our lungs expanded with fresher air upon hearing 
about the themes decided upon by the HSG Global with the intention to curate and generate conversations taking us to the heart of power, politics, social structures, and technologies. We applied to facilitate an organized session at the HSG Global Convening, and when the HSG Africa Regional Network launched a call for convenings that explicitly calls on decolonizing health systems and policy research as a central theme, our lungs found the air that would make us breathe possibility into today. We had envisioned a gathering with an applied transformative pedagogy that will allow us to have a very reflexive, warm, and open conversation where we can connect to the visceral, where we can draw explicitly on the different sense modalities and knowledges. Our bodies can think and feel and change as we nurture deeper consciousness. We had to adapt to the crisis of coronavirus and with the support of the Atlantic Institute, Tecano, Chesai, and many other contributions from these communities, we have now created an amazing virtual gathering that allows us to dissipate borders and expand our reach. We may not be able to sing together or dance in the same room, and we cannot share meals together. However, we are still here today. And although we have collaborated with people across the continent to increase participation and inclusivity, we deeply acknowledge where we fall short. And some of these places in being representative of the diverse languages on the continent, which could have facilitated a much deeper conversation and participation from many local contexts. However, this is a starting point and a journey which we've invited all of you into, and we will continue to learn, reflect, and build as we go along on a journey of collective solidarity on the continent. Finally, I would like to reiterate, this is your space. You are part of this gathering, and this is an invitation to journey and breathe with us in a world where breathing has become both dangerous and brave. Thank you. I now hand over to Lance. Thank you so much, Anaz. I would like to affirm the warm welcome to everyone in this gathering and meeting virtually and just reflect on Shanaz's invitation to consciousness with our bodies, our minds, our hearts against the backdrop of biological, chemical, political, technological, economic and social forces of the world we're living today. My offering today is in terms of the kind of process engagement that will guide our conversation over the next few hours, but also as we extend this conversation into our final day tomorrow. We observe values, beliefs, practices that recognize humanity in this space. Every interaction with each other is seen as an opportunity for knowledge creation and production, useful to read the world in ways that center people's experiences, which can ultimately inform our process and outputs from this generative space. It is seen as an opportunity to acknowledge the knowledge of everyone in the room as a learning principle. We acknowledge that we all bring ourselves in gathering in every space, every conversation, that our ideas, our expertise, our beliefs, our biases, our values, our prejudices, and our vulnerability. It is imperative to create a brave and safer space to share 
while providing opportunities for critical reflection, and we welcome that. In our quest to create a catalytic community within the HSG African network and across other African communities, it is encouraged that we recognize difference in values, in structures, in diversity, and to learn from one another. A catalytic African community can only be created when we are all authentic and empathetic towards one another. This requires us to come with an open mind, an open heart, and open arms ready to give and ready to receive. We have a series of post-conference outcomes from this convening, and this is only a starting point for our collective gathering. This convening will be the first of many African-centered decolonial conversations, and it forms part of a series of the HSG conversations that are planned as part of the regional networks convenings, so it's part of that. And we are hoping that in the planning for the coming months that we can offer further webinars and cross-continental conversations on tools that can be used to decolonize the HBSR field and to have a representation of views and thought leadership by the convening organizers and by the broader community at the Health Systems Global Conference in November 2020, taking forward the collective knowledge and experience to influence Health Systems Global 2020 and the future Health Policy and Systems Research Symposia. I would also like to offer a recap from yesterday for those joining us for the very first time today. So we had a very fruitful discussion yesterday and appreciate the contributions and the feedback from the community about the conversations. We are open and eager to learn and reflect collectively, and we welcome you on board. We are really serious about our invitation for you to be part of this, and so connect with us on the various platforms that are available to connect. So this is a really nice snapshot of what was discussed yesterday. A key highlight from yesterday's conversations and reflections were the question of who is African and what is an African health system? as well as how do we move forward with this project and being careful of overgeneralizations, homogenous and monolithic ways of talking about an African health system and being mindful not to reinforce colonial discourses or problematic discourses and perpetuate a single narrative of Africa and of African and what it means to be African. The fire starters in the community highlighted the relevance of criticality and critical theory in our theorizations and our practices for addressing inequities and the usefulness of discourse of decoloniality, health and health systems in Africa as important. However, we are very mindful and we will caution of being pompous, esoteric and abstract or heavily theoretical without considering the implications for practice and people doing the work at grassroots or ground level. There was definitely a caution for us not to speak past each other and assume that we all know what we are speaking about when we use the concepts drawn from decolonial theorists and the theoretical frameworks that have been raised in yesterday's conversations. We are mindful of who is represented in panels and how ideas are constituted 
And we really try to incorporate diverse perspectives and voices and hope we can have people coming forward in perspective gatherings to offer their experiences and their perspectives, especially if you feel that your perspective was not represented meaningfully or that you were invisibilized, your identity, what you bring and your offering was invisibilized. And we hope that you can bring this into this conversation as well as take up our invitation for engagement and inclusion. Decoloniality requires disruption of thinking and consciousness, and that was definitely a theme that was highlighted yesterday. And this is a conscientization project. And there was an agreement of a deep political consciousness for the reimagining project. And this means finding a language, finding the knowledge, finding the practices, and finding different ways of doing and being that exist within us, that is carried forward through our predecessors. There was also an acknowledgement of the importance of interrogating and the recognition of bias, both implicit and explicit, and develop and encourage explicit mental models about reflexivity and incorporate diversity, respect, and a recognition of humanity. And finally, we recognize the importance of understanding the past in order to move forward. So there were ideas about social democracies in the past and present that can guide us and might move us closer to socially adjust health systems envisaged by the convening. And with that, with those opening remarks and reflections from yesterday, we wish you a powerful and transformative gathering and hope that you can really be grounded in the space and feel part of this journey as we move along. Aluta Continua. Thank you so much, Lance and Shanaz, for that incredible framing and for reminding us that this is a space for boundary breaking and for reimagining and recreating and also making center and visible the knowledge we already hold within ourselves as human beings historically and bringing our ancestors and our different forms of knowledge into the space. Thank you so much. So we want to start to do that. We want to start to unpack who we are, where we are, and so it's my honor and privilege to introduce the amazing Philippa Namutebi Kabali Kagwa. Philippa is a storyteller, a poet, a coach, and a skilled facilitator with over 20 years of experience. She uses storytelling as a catalyst for community conversations, for teaching, and for entertainment. And at the center of her practice is deep listening. And she responds to client requests with bespoke solutions covering all of these ways of engaging. Philippa believes that we all need to hear stories and to tell stories and to use stories in order to shape the world we live in. She has created performances to activate space within art galleries, performed in collaboration with other storytellers and poets, and curated solo performances over this illustrious 20-year career. She's also just coming off of a second-place award in the Ultimate Storyteller Award Ceremony that took place yesterday. So we want to acknowledge and say congratulations. We are so honored to have you. If you were there yesterday, you will look forward to engaging once again with Philippa, who does a phenomenal job of warming the space. So without further ado, I'd like to invite Philippa to take us into the invitation to place section as we get to know each other a little bit more. Over to you, lovely Philippa. Welcome. I am really happy to see all of you. And as Tanya said, my job is to warm the space. I come in with a language that is not medical. I come in with a language that is really about the arts and people and how we connect as human beings. 
as a storyteller, place is very, very important. When we talk about where we come from, when we're talking about Africa, what is this Africa we're talking about? So yesterday we did a little exercise with the map of Africa where we asked people to name all the countries. I think one person managed 53 countries but most of us struggled. And so what we're inviting you to do is to really understand. Let's get to know our continent. Let's get to know our history. So today I have a little game to play. Some of you did history in school. There are three kingdoms, ancient kingdoms, the kingdom of Aksum, the kingdom of Songhai, and or the kingdom of Mutapa, the Mutapa Empire, the Songhai Empire, the Mutapa Empire, the kingdom of Aksum. My question is, which countries on today's map did each of these kingdoms cover? And what is each kingdom famous for? The kingdom of Aksum or the Songhai Empire or the Mutapa Empire? Maybe you know them. And if you do, please show off. Most of them covered more than one country. Any more? Any more? Okay, so here are the answers. When we are doing things about decoloniality, there's the Akan of Ghana, you know, they have this thing called Sankofa where they say sometimes in order to go forward, we've got to go back to pick the things up that we need. And then the other thing is we need to know where we are in order to move forward on a journey. And then we need to dream into the future so that we can actually know where we're going to. So when you talk about Aksum, yes, it's Ethiopia and Eritrea. Some people say the Covenant of the Ark is buried there. The Songhai Empire was very famous for Timbuktu and Generation of Knowledge. Mansa Musa, yes, was Mali. The Motapa Empire was Lesotho, Mozambique, South Africa, Swaziland, Zambia, and Zimbabwe. What it really shows us is as African people, we traveled. Somebody yesterday, I think it was Faisal, who reminded us that this thing of migrancy and movement and recreating things is something that is a human condition. And so can we, as we begin to unpack and create and dream into the Africa that we want? Can we not throw away the things of the past, but can we also get to know who we are? Because when you know who you are and you know where you come from, you're able to move forward. And we probably come from multiple places. So for me, that's just your invitation. Let's really get to know our continent. And can we tell our stories from our perspective? Because we often tell our stories from the Western gaze because we tend to go to the archives, which are often written archives, which were written by people who are not our people, many of them, though we do have some ancient writings. I was inspired last year when I had a conversation with a Ugandan author called Jennifer Makumbi, who wrote this book called Chintu. It's a book that starts in Buganda, in Uganda, way before the colonial experience. And she writes right through, I think, five generations into now. It actually starts now. And she creates incredible pictures of the geography of the country and space. And so I had a conversation with her and I asked her, where did you get that information? Because when I read it, I have a visceral reaction. I can feel it. I can smell it. I'm there. And she said, I went to folklore. Because in our folklore, in our traditions, 
in our cultural practices, in their uh, hidden gems and stories, there are our archives. She created a picture of a place called Orera, which is sometimes dry and sometimes marshy place where this king walked. It's between Masaka and Kampala. And I asked her, how did you draw that? And she said, you know, even today, when people come from Masaka to Kampala, they're told, Kuliko Orera. That means well done for surviving that place because it was a terrible journey. Even today, they talk about it. And she said, in exploring that and going deeper and talking to elders and understanding, I was able to visualize what the place could have looked like. And from that, I created the story which now modern people can read and we can relate to in a way we maybe couldn't. So the invitation really here is to explore and to realize that our archives are maybe not the written archives on bookshelves in Oxford and Makerere and University of Cape Town. Those might not be the only archives we need to explore, but there might be a whole load of other things that carry the information that we need. Okay, I would like to continue the conversation around language because one of the things we were talking about today is we're bringing in people, and Lance hinted at it, people are coming in here with different languages. And for me, it's the language of the sociologist versus the language of the pediatrician versus the language of the physiotherapist versus the language of the artist. And we tend to use the word versus, but I'm inviting us to see language not as something that divides us, but language is really a tool for communication. And so how can we start our conversations with the intention of saying, I am here to be understood and to understand. And in order to be understood, I need to share my thinking. I must not assume that when people hear this concept that I've been thinking about for the last 20 years, they have journeyed with me for those 20 years to come to where I am. I might need to be a bit more explicit and help them understand. And then we need to listen because it's not a debate. And normally when we listen, we're ready to debate. Eh? So as soon as someone says something I don't understand or I don't agree with, I'm like, ah, I'm ready. <laughs> I'm ready with my comeback. And I don't listen to the rest of their conversation. So yeah, put your fists up and then put them down again and be curious and say, hmm, I really wonder why Lance thinks like this. Let me pay attention to see if there's anything I can connect to. Or maybe if I listen more, I will know what question I want to ask them so that they can help me understand. I think that's the kind of invitation that we are making today. We are shifting, we are not debating, we are in this thing together. And our diversity as a continent is the beauty of our continent. We have more languages spoken on this continent than any other continent in the world. And how do we use that as an asset and not see it as something that divides us? We have people coming here from so many different places with so many different knowledges that if they come together, we would weave a tapestry that would be so beautiful. How do we use that to our advantage rather than use it as a way of digging in heels? We're talking about creating new language. Even me, this coloniality language thing, I don't often understand the terms that they use. And so there are no stupid questions in this room. 
There are no stupid questions in this room. We're all asking important questions. And sometimes the stupidest question is the best question because it challenges people to simplify and be clear about what they want to say. I'm going to end my introduction with a poem. I'm going to read Invocation. It is a poem written by Lebohang Mashile, a South African poet. And in this time when we are having these conversations about decoloniality and really stepping strongly into our identity as Africans, owning that we come from people with knowledge and with a history and we know who we are, we will invoke our ancestors. Invocation. We call on memories buried inside skeletons of the first people to walk the skin of the earth, who nursed and nested in the cradle and spread civilizations across the planet like seeds. Tell us of the air that flows through the heart of the land to all life and creation. Tell us of breath, the first song. Tell us of words like constellations of ideas mapping our contribution to humanity. Tell us of infinity, how the universe lives in us. Tell us which stars bear our names so that we no longer fear the night. Tell us of earth, of roots that course through the body of the land like veins through flesh. Tell us of the force that squeezed red sand like dough to form mountains. Tell us how to make communities strong, like gemstones formed under extreme pressure. We call on the desert to remember when she was the bottom of the sea. Help us to understand how to be fluid like water, how to be supple without losing our identity. We call on the volcanoes to inject us with flames of imagination. Once we carried tongues burping fire, we melted metals with our minds. Tell us what we have forgotten. We are not afraid of bones. Tell us what we have lost. We are not afraid of remembering. Tell us what has been erased. We are not afraid of time. Tell us who we once were. We are not afraid of ourselves. We are not afraid of ourselves. We are not afraid of ourselves. Welcome and have a wonderful conversation. And remember, this is the beginning of something that will continue. So don't use too much time, honor other people because there will be more time. We are not afraid of ourselves. Beautifully, beautifully acknowledging who we are in this room, acknowledging our pasts and our presence. And reminding us that we are assets. I think the world we live in sometimes as Africans, we don't hear that enough. We don't celebrate that enough. So it's a beautiful reminder that we are assets and that we are gathered here to weave a beautiful tapestry. So let's move into that now.
it is my honor and my privilege now to open session to deep dive into creating an African project, rethinking the configuration of knowledge to advance African health and health systems. In this session, we explore the ways in which the field of health practice systems research offers us ways to guide us in engaging with the social, economic, political nature of health systems. This includes highlighting the work of scholars in Africa who have utilized different knowledge and methodological approaches across disciplines with a particular focus on the often undervalued social science contributions, among many other contributions. HPSR scholars have also increasingly theorized or used theory and worked with different local actors, including policymakers, civil society, and others who have shaped the nature of the health field. In this session, we unpack how this can go even further. The speakers, or as we call them, the fire starters, will offer reflections on alternative paradigms of knowledge and what the possibilities are for an African decolonial archive of health knowledge. As Philippa said, how we look back to build the future and to practice and advance socially just health systems on the African continent. Facilitating this session is the amazing Dr. Koi Muraya. She is a gender and health systems researcher based at the Kemri Wellcome Trust Research Program in Kenya and a fellow of the Initiative to Develop African Research Leaders, IDEAL. She currently leads the gender and health research within KWTRP and is the principal investigator of a participatory study exploring gender and societal norms that influence male engagement in child health and nutrition within urban informal settlements with the aim of course of co-creating a context-specific feasible and scalable male engagement intervention package for improved and more responsive health service delivery. We are honored to have Dr. Kui facilitating and also welcome all our speakers, fire starters, who will help us unpack this session in more detail. Over to you, Dr. Kui. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much, Tanya, for the kind introduction. Slightly disconcerting going after Philippa because I think she's such a brilliant mind, speaks so brilliantly. But anyway, I will try to rise to the occasion. I'm personally so delighted to be part of this conversation because for me, I'm just reflecting about this. I feel the dialogue and the discourse around decolonizing global health has predominantly emerged or has been led out until quite recently from maybe Northern institutions or by Northern scholars. And so for me, having this conversation and starting this collective process together is a way of shifting the center of gravity, if you like, of this conversation. And not that it's a bad thing that it emerged from various spaces. In and of itself, it's not a bad thing. However, I think there's a danger of inadvertently excluding certain voices, certainly the voices of perhaps people from the global south or people who have that history of oppression and subjugation and colonization. So I really think it's a great thing that we're having this conversation to kind of try and shift that center and really center the conversation around Africa. 
And then also just something else I've been reflecting on since yesterday and more so now with the introduction that has happened. I think Shanaz kind of brought this out when she alluded to the diversity of languages. Lance did an excellent job of summarizing everything we discussed yesterday. And really that warning around being careful not to talk about Africa as a homogeneous whole and recognizing that there's diversity and a lot of heterogeneity within the continent, between countries and also within countries. So I want to invite my speakers, even as they give their insights, if they can reflect a little bit on how do we have this conversation that we're having right now while still doing justice and acknowledging that Africa is not one homogeneous whole. So when we talk about African health systems, how do we infuse in that the fact that actually Africa is not homogeneous and there's a lot of heterogeneity? Just putting that out there, and I hope the speakers, I know you already have your comments ready and everything, but if you can just weave that through or think about that, that'll be great. So with that, I'd like to introduce our first fire status speaker, and Clara, I apologize in advance if I pronounce your name wrong. Our first speaker for today is Clara Afun Adebulu. She's a nurse and a health systems researcher based at the Institute of Tropical Medicine Antwerp in Belgium. Her main areas of interest are eco-health, urban health, health systems and equity, particularly in fragile and conflict-affected settings, and governance and gender as determinants of health. Clara is also a political science PhD student working on women's representation and de-democratization. Perhaps she will tell us what de-democratization means. Clara, over to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And you did a good job with pronouncing my last name. So, well done. Thanks for having me. And I wanted to start by saying I really agreed with what Kai said with regards to most of the conversation around decolonization starting in the North. Thankfully, this is changing, but it is something that I think is also really important because it in one way takes over the conversation and then also excludes certain people from being able to contribute to the subject. Of course, in an ideal world, everyone would have equal access to the contributions. So just a few comments to make. For me, the conversation on epistemology is a really important one about changing how knowledge is produced, how it's reproduced, how it's used. I think this is something that's really important, obviously, when it comes to health systems research and uh, health systems development. But I think there's a more fundamental issue that we often ignore when we focus on, on epistemology, and that's the ways of being. So ontology, but to make that quite accessible to everyone it's just simply the ways of being we start from the next level so we focus on how do we know what do we know but all of that has a basis in how are we how do we I was going to say how do we be but <laughs> that's the best way of explaining it how do we see ourselves how do we perceive reality that's basically the basis of how you then go on to generate or reproduce knowledge Another aspect that is still underspoken about, in my opinion, is also the things we value. So the axiology, this is hopefully going to become more and more important as time goes on. So for me, really, before we get to even talking about epistemology, we need to go two steps backwards to think, what are the ways of seeing reality which define and then shape the knowledge that's produced and reproduced? And what are the things that are valued? There's something also very important that I think we should talk about, which is that when we talk about the exclusion of African epistemologies, we're then focusing on European epistemologies. But then on the other hand, 
there's also the European ways of being and European ways of valuing things, which are not exactly the same as ways of being and of valuing things in Africa. So, for instance, the goal of the Eurocentric epistemology, ontology, axiology, all of that is really the promotion of capitalism. The goal is to generate as much profit, as much wealth as possible, which in itself also actually excludes people, even the global north. So it excludes people who are disabled. It excludes certain genders. It excludes a lot of people in the global north. And then it excludes also people from all different parts of the world. So going back to my initial point, which is that before we go to the next level of talking about how we generate knowledge, we need to go back to the foundation, which is how are the ways of being who has defined this? Because again, the thing with capitalism is if you cannot produce value, which is a very interesting context-specific way of defining it sometimes, then you have no use in that way of thinking. If you cannot produce value, if you cannot contribute to capitalism, then you have no use. This is why, as I said, even in the global north, people are excluded because the goal is really to further profit. But a question that I really struggle with myself is when we then go on to, thank you for bringing this up, Kyle. So when we then talk about ontologies and axiologies and African ways of being, et cetera, et cetera, the question is, what does this mean? I'm Nigerian in origin, and I think it's a really complicated issue to deal with because, for instance, we're not starting with a clean slate. Things have changed. The impact of colonization still exists. It didn't just stop in 1960. Today, by the way, is the Independence Day for Nigeria. So (laughs) I just wanted to say that. Thank you. But things didn't stop. This effect did not stop on the 1st of October 1960. It continues to today. And so for me, this is really complicated on two levels. One, no country is a monolith, even within each national boundary. They're not monoliths, each tribe, each ethnicity which some might say artificial, whatever the case. Now this is what it is. But things are different from each group to each group. And then on top of that, we ourselves who work in health systems research and health systems development, knowingly or unknowingly, subconsciously, unconsciously, we've imbibed a lot of these ways of thinking. We've imbued a lot of these ways of doing things in our practice, and it then shapes what we prioritize as being a value or what we think is the right way to be. So my question to all of us is, first of all, what do we define as African ways of being? And what do we see as African ways of valuing things? Because as I said before, this is the first step, but how can we work on defining that? given all the things that I've said before. And then secondly, how can we in creating, or some can say going back to the past and recreating, but in doing that, how do we ensure that we do not again come up with new hierarchies where we create what is in some ways the basis of the current system, where we then set certain ways of being as more important than others, certain things of value, we deem them as more important than others. Like, how do we deal with these tensions? And then on a very individual level, how do we work in our own day-to-day practice? I'm a health systems researcher. I live in Belgium. I'm before my computer every day doing a few things. And it doesn't seem like I'm contributing to colonization or decolonization, but in some ways I am. How do I deal with that on an individual level? 
basically, I think these are my first three questions and we can discuss this further. Thank you. Perhaps I'll let all the speakers speak and then I will give my thoughts and reflections and summary points. So we'll go straight into the second bias status speaker. Again, Dr. Irene, my apologies if I pronounce your last name incorrectly, but I shall do my best. So Dr. Irene Akwa Ayepong is a public health consultant at Dodoa Health Research Center and is also a foundation fellow in the public health faculty, Ghana College of Physicians and Surgeons. Previously, she was placed on secondment by the Ghana Health Service to the University of Ghana School of Public Health. So I invite Dr. Irene to please go ahead and give her remarks. Thank you. Thank you very much for the opportunity. I decided to look more at how do you change what is. And I started off by really just looking at traditionally when we talk of colonialism, what does it mean? Basically, traditionally, it was really about the policy and the practice of acquiring full or partial political control over another territory. You know, it could be putting settlers there, exploiting it economically. Then there's also this term which keeps coming up of neocolonialism, which is really now you are not visibly acquiring other people's territory, but you are still using economic, political, cultural power and other pressures to still control and influence countries that you formerly physically occupied. And from there, my question was, when we talk about colonialism in HPSR and we want to change it, what are we trying to change? I think a bit, you still have the visible thing, which if you like, mirrors a bit what I've labeled traditional colonialism in that access to incentives, the rules for distribution of resources, financial, human recognition, etc., are controlled, not in an equitable manner, but more by one group sometimes on behalf of everybody else. But beyond that visible one, and which is expressed in things like the 80-20 gap and the 10-90 gap and whatever the gaps are, you also have what I would call a more subtle kind of colonialism, which I think is much of what this dialogue is about. Listening to people yesterday through today, reading the background papers, which are more the control of perceptions, of thinking, of ideas, of values, of perspectives, of unquestioned assumptions. And underlying all these is issues of process and power. And the two link to each other inextricably. And also they are not only rooted in the present, they are rooted in the context of the history of the economics and so on of the systems we are talking about. And it's good that we're talking about Africa not being uniform. I just took this from some work we did in West Africa to illustrate that even within West Africa, we just kind of looked at papers which we can clearly classify as HPSR. How many papers are we getting in each country in relation to the population of the country? Who is the lead author? Is it somebody who's West African based and embedded in West Africa? Or is it somebody from outside? Sometimes we talk about parachute research. And you can see the amount of variability even across the 15 countries of West Africa, reinforcing the point about needing to be careful about 
lumping Africa into one homogeneous mass, which is a bit part of colonialism and colonial thinking. It takes as much time to get from Accra, where I live, to East or Southern Africa as it takes to get to Europe. And traveling from North to South can take as much time as it takes. So Africa is a huge continent of great diversity. So to get back to the point I'm trying to make, which is focusing really on how do we change the status quo? Because I think the point has clearly been made that there is a kind of status quo of undervaluing what is African, not paying attention to it and looking for inspiration outside rather than within. I think in a way to try to change the status quo, you need to start with this understanding of the processes, sources and use of power to create and maintain the status quo. And you also need to focus to me a bit on the issues I've talked about of ideas and values. We are talking now in a group of HPSR researchers. Almost everybody on this forum has gone through basic education, has gone through their first degree, gone through a second degree, has probably done a terminal degree such as a PhD. So you are really talking of people who have reached the top of the educational system. But I want to make the point that if you want to decolonize, you need to think across the educational system. And you also need to think beyond people in the educational system to the whole society. Because right now, for example, we are having this dialogue, like I said, and there's nothing wrong with being elite. It's okay, but you just need to recognize you are elite. We are a pretty elite group. But there is a large group out there who feed this elite group. And you do need to also address the issues of the way they see the world and the way they create and maintain the world and maintain the status quo. So we need to look at awareness, at educational systems, at cross-cutting issues. The other thing I've realized is that in our anxiety to develop, we are focusing on the hard sciences, which is good science, technology, mathematics is excellent. But I think sometimes we are undervaluing the social sciences. I'm now talking of my view of the way we are teaching and bringing up the generations of Africans. It's changing, but it's changing too slowly. Subjects like history and philosophy, reason, logic, critical thinking, I think we need to go back and start finding ways of introducing some of these issues, even at the primary school level. If I can give a personal example, and I think I probably belong to another generation, hopefully it says better for this generation, but sometimes I wonder. I was in primary school soon after Kwame Nkrumah was overthrown in Ghana. The history we were taught at that time was that Kwame Nkrumah was basically an evil dictator. It's only... Many years later, that I myself started revisiting history, reading about Kwame Nkrumah, reading his own words, reading people who met him at first hand. Then I began to see another facet of our own history. And I just used this little example to say that even we ourselves are helping with colonial thinking and not paying attention to what is going into the content 
of our educational systems lower down the ladder before you come to the top here where we are talking of decolonization. And to change things, you really need to think across the society, the perceptions, the assumptions, the values, the ideas, the interests. These all influence the incentives and rules for allocation and distribution of the resources that are used to generate knowledge. Often we think we are so poor that to put resources into generating HPSR knowledge is not a priority. It is an underlying assumption, a failure to recognize that some things matter. And you can only change that assumption by re-looking at the wider, bigger society, if you forgive me for using that word, the ordinary man and woman in the street, and also the language in which you are communicating with people. Because there's a language in which when you communicate with people, you lose them. I'm a physician, but I really value social sciences. I promote them everywhere I go. But in medical school, I didn't. Because we were taught sociology in public health, and the lecturer spoke above our heads. He was using big terms and not explaining them, actualization. And we were all at sea, and it was, this is too abstract. We don't get its use. We don't get its value. I start working in public health. I start working with communities, with local governments, trying to bring about change, looking for information to bring about change. And my search keeps leading me to the social science literature. And I find there's a wealth there. And as I understand it, I think, oh my goodness, somebody should have spoken to this, the way that sociology, anthropology, culture was being taught to medical students who are going to be very influential in society and help them to recognize that by the way you are teaching, you are actually devaluing a valuable resource. I think I have made my point. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Dr. Irene. That was fantastic. Thank you. I'll give my reflections later on. So on to our third speaker, our third fire starter for this session. I'd like to introduce Professor Simukai Chigudu. I trust I pronounced that correct, who is an associate professor of African politics at the Oxford Department of International Development and a fellow of St. Anthony's College in Oxford University. He's the author of The Political Life of an Epidemic, Cholera, Crisis, and Citizenship in Zimbabwe, which examines the social and political causes and consequences of Zimbabwe's catastrophic cholera outbreak in 2008-2009, which was the worst in African history. And more generally, Simukai is interested in the social politics of inequality in Africa. We look forward to hearing from you. Over to you, Professor. Thank you very much for having me this afternoon, uh, for this kind invitation to participate in such an important series of discussions. And a big thanks, of course, to the two previous speakers, who I think have laid the groundwork for some of the thoughts I wish to share. Now, I think I'm going to approach this perhaps from a slightly different perspective. I've been studying epidemics for a number of years now. As was just introduced, I published my first book earlier this year on the politics of a cholera outbreak in Zimbabwe. I teach courses on epidemics and so on. And in our present COVID pandemic, I've been kind of seized trying to follow and make sense of the social and political contours of how this pandemic has been playing out and what it might mean for the African continent. Something that struck me from very early on in the outbreak is around February, March time, as COVID had caught Europe underwear, 
and was resulting in all manner of devastation in northern Italy as it was starting to spread through France and making its way to the UK. I was struck that reports about the potential impact of COVID-19 in Africa were all catastrophic. I read numerous scientific papers with predictions, newspaper articles, and blog pieces that all said that once COVID-19 hit Africa, it would be an unmitigated disaster. It was the catastrophe in the waiting room, ready to take hold of a continent that's woefully ill-equipped to deal with this virus. In a sense, what emerged was a kind of circulating discourse, a set of shared and common assumptions that try to understand Africa as the final frontier of the devastation that the COVID-19 pandemic was going to show. And this framing treated Africa as a whole, and it actually mirrors one of the prompts that was given in the rubric for this session, which was it was a form of objectifying Africa, not seeing the continent in any richness or complexity, not trying to understand the myriad polities that make up the continent, the wide range of economic circumstances, or indeed the distinct history of epidemics and public health in the continent. Instead, what we were treated to was a kind of meta-narrative of Africa as a foil against which the catastrophe in Europe might be contextualized. Now, this narrative trope, this discourse or this idea of Africa as the final frontier actually mirrors an older version of how Africa has featured within global narratives around epidemics. And that is the idea that Africa is the kind of primordial origin of the viruses or the bacteria or the other pathogens that are going to cause worldwide devastation. Right, so we've seen some recent iterations of this. We saw this with Ebola and the huge fear that the Ebola outbreak was going to spread from West Africa and that Europe needed to lock down its borders, the United States needed to lock down its borders, that militaries and security forces needed to be sent into the region to keep the virus at bay. We saw earlier iterations of this with HIV AIDS and the various forms of stigma attached to Africans as carriers of that deadly virus. And so I started exploring the history of where this comes from. In part, it emanates from an idea that crossed over from the world of science into the world of public policy. So back in 1989, at an international meeting of scientists hosted by Rockefeller University and the United States National Institutes of Health, a team of virologists, microbiologists, clinicians, public health scholars met to talk about what they saw as the threat of so-called emerging viruses. The keynote speech was delivered by a virologist called Joshua Lederberg. Lederberg said in his keynote address that the single greatest threat to humanity is the virus. Now, what's crucial to understand is that this new understanding of viruses emanated from developments in microbiology, particularly the genetic mapping of microbes that allowed the kind of identification of different clusters of viruses, many of which were relatively new and not that well known about. So these might include things like HIV at the time, or many of the cluster of so-called hantaviruses or hemorrhagic fever viruses, including Ebola, that were raising a kind of specter of fear 
around viruses spreading around the globe. So you have that development happening on one side and the kind of mapping of these phenomena. Partly as a result of an intensification of globalization, there was also a kind of recrudescence, a re-emergence of diseases that had thought to be left behind. Things like cholera, typhoid, and other illnesses that within the heyday of the mid-20th century were no longer such big threats to human health. They seemed to be re-emerging. And so you got this cluster of things that were called emerging and re-emerging diseases. And yet this category of emerging viruses and the kind of specter of catastrophe that they raised actually had very little by way of a coherent empirical basis. There was no specific reason to think or to group these viruses together. In other words, clustering them together and saying that, oh, we now have this threat of emerging and re-emerging infectious agents is a social construct. And it was a social construct that really gripped the American imagination. So over the 1990s, a number of journalists in particular began to publish books warning of new global epidemics of a kind of coming plague. And the notion of the coming plague, which was made popular by the American journalist Laurie Garrett, coincided with another set of writing around the threat that West Africa in particular plays for the rest of the world that Robert Kaplan had described as the coming anarchy. What these two tropes have in common is a certain way of narrating or thinking about the world in which Africa as object is a site of primordial threat. And then, of course, with the COVID-19 epidemic, it's the final destination of catastrophe. But these are mirror images of each other. They present to us a form of othering, a form of treating Africa as a kind of foil, a site of alterity relative to Euro-America, something that always has to be controlled or to be managed. And what I'd like to suggest is that the practice, the idea of anticipating catastrophe in Africa does important and very dangerous political work. It gives us a kind of pre-existing blueprint for how we respond, say those of us who broadly speaking work within global health or development, a way of conceptualizing the problems that exist on the African continent that are really an artifact of fantasy and fear rather than empirical reality. And yet when we see these images and these ideas constantly in circulation, they create their own version of the truth, their own sense of how we create or co-create reality. And in anticipating catastrophe, we start to gloss over both the complexity of what happens on the ground and the myriad social formations that exist across a vast geographic landscape. We fail to understand the systems of adaptation, resilience. We don't look to Africa sufficiently as a site of innovation and ingenuity in dealing with various forms of crisis. So again, we might ask ourselves, how is it possible, right, that in the midst of a global pandemic in the form of COVID-19, nobody is looking, for instance, for leadership in Africa, when Africans have long-standing political and social experience of dealing with different forms of pandemic, of community mobilization, of contact tracing, of a host of different practices. Things are hampered on the continent due to structural and systemic weaknesses, but even that's instructive. And so, There's a kind of geopolitical hierarchy that exists, not only an economic sense, which we know about, but also in a sense of where we legitimate the production of knowledge or even the production of wisdom about how to deal with pandemics as a form of crisis. The other issue that I wanted to point out in terms of anticipating catastrophe, which has a much more nefarious side, is it allows certain forms of leadership, particularly repressive forms of leadership, to mask or to gloss over their own agency. 
So for instance, in Zimbabwe, the country that I know best, there has been some very brutal forms of lockdown and civic repression that has coincided with the pandemic. Now, for a host of reasons that, of course, we can unpack, people engaged in opposition politics, engaged in challenging, say, various forms of corruption or authoritarianism have been arrested, often without charge, have been locked up in quite deplorable conditions. Mass popular protest has been shut down. And the government has claimed at various points that it's because of COVID-19 that such stringent measures are warranted. And so this kind of repression of civic activity kind of latches onto a larger or looming global imaginary of the form that a pandemic threat yields. And so in this sense, political agency is being exercised to nefarious ends, but our global narrative is not accommodating that. In fact, it is allowing this stuff to occur. I guess part of the challenge then, if we are to talk about decolonizing our ways of thinking about health systems, we also need to understand the kind of narrative or discursive architecture around which global health has been built, which includes, of course, this anticipatory regime that only seeks to see catastrophe coming within Africa. And my aim here is not only to say that there are more stories of, say, creativity, agency, ingenuity that exist within Africa. I mean, all of that's true, but that also agency can be harnessed for quite nefarious ends and that political repression or civic repression can also coexist within that. But whichever way you look at it, a kind of glossing over or homogenizing view about these impersonal forces such as microbes shaping human destiny is at root a big part of the problem. So we need to be able to hold two things in our heads at the same time. We need to be able to deal with the complex reality of what epidemics are and yet not fully surrender to the kind of narrative structures that have been given to us that gloss over how human beings interact with the microbial world. Thank you. Thank you, Simakai. I will now go to our last but not least speaker. Our fourth speaker for this Firestarter session is Professor Pascal Alote, who is the director of the United Nations University International Institute for Global Health. And I'm proud to say that I'm a visiting fellow of that institution. She is a nurse and midwife with a background in anthropology and epidemiology. Her research in global health for the last three decades covers health equity, health and human rights, gender and social determinants of health, migration, sexual and reproductive health, tropical diseases, and non-communicable diseases. She has pioneered methodological approaches for engaging communities in research and policy processes to ensure joint ownership and partnership in health and service delivery. And we look forward to hearing from you, Prof. Alote. Over to you. Thank you. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. A big thank you to the organizers for putting this together and for the invitation. A huge ayako or congratulations on the topic and on many of the robust interventions that I was able to pick up yesterday and that are certainly continuing today. The problem with being the last speaker on such an eminent panel is that the points that I have made have already been made in some form or that everybody is tired and they can't wait for the break. So just indulge me for a little while so I can make a few points and try not to repeat things that have already been said. So I'd like to frame my interventions as a series of questions for which I do not necessarily have the answers, but in seeking to respond to these questions, what I would hope for is 
or some direction towards concrete strategy for moving this conversation from ideas challenging the orthodoxy to a sea change. I really want to go away from this meeting with some tools to make a difference. So before I start, I'd like to make a brief but important point about positionality, which I believe is very relevant to this discussion. I am Ghanaian. I'm a Ghar woman, as they say, and very proudly so. I have fond memories of a childhood constantly annoying my grandmother with questions because I was really interested in her use of language, in why she couldn't just, for instance, just give me one word to describe the red cloth that she wanted me to get from her wardrobe. Instead, she'd go into all these stories about the hues of the sunset and it's, you know, the one that looks like the sunset. No, it's not that one versus the one that looks like blood. No, it's not that one or the one that is like the color of clay and so on. All of this just to distinguish between the different cloths that she did not want. So other than yes or no, and probably the plethora of insults about my stubbornness, she very rarely made statements that were not proverbs or metaphors or adages. I loved it. And it has fueled the love for me of storytelling and undoubtedly my interest in anthropology. Now, other than being a Ghanaian, I am also very much a part of the African diaspora. I have not been resident in Ghana, really, since 1988, although many I go back as often as I can. And I come from a position of privilege. Again, I think this is an important point to make. My parents were educated. I had opportunities for the best education, however one might define that, both in Ghana and internationally. And I say this because my views are very much a part of, but also apart from those of my colleagues here on this call, who are much more deeply rooted in experiences of the many cultures and realities of the many countries in Africa. These define who I am, guide how I think about the world and the choices that I make. I choose to caveat my comments with this because this conversation is one of nuance one that is very much about identity and about how our identities and experiences intersect and interact with the histories that define Africa as it is today and possibly define what we think the solutions might be for these very big conversations over these three days. The positioning is important because as an early career researcher, it made me invisible a fly on the wall of often fairly high-level meetings with experts from the top academic research and development institutions in global health. And I will include the usual multilateral agencies in this as well. Invisible because I was unseen and unheard, but was meant to feel lucky that I was allowed to even be in the room. And the invisibility made me witness to some of the most highly respected academics in the field talking about Africa and Africans in what are still some of the most disparaging terms I have heard. So it is deeply personal to me when I hear the hunger in the voices of colleagues and early career researchers yearning for the opportunity to study at the feet of many such scholars who have very little respect for the people and the places on which their careers have been built. But also, bearing in mind all of that as well, is my own internal contradictions of knowing that these were the same opportunities that have supported my career. So here are the questions. 
how brave are we in the quest for disruption of coloniality in global health, in health systems? The choice of the word brave is a very deliberate choice. I'll expand on that a little bit. For all the criticisms of coloniality, the ethos is actually rooted in our education and health institutions, perpetuating hierarchies and power. Our institutions have very heavily embraced a system of teaching and learning that was created under a colonial system and have been resistant to change. They have now merged with a patriarchal culture to create an almost impregnable barrier to enabling discourse and engagement with young minds and even in some cases with new technologies. The reality is that the system as it currently exists works very well for many, and so there is no real interest in making a change. How do we deal with a system that we say is broken while many of us still relish in being able to make art from the shards? We have a growing body of evidence, for instance, and Irene presented some of it. We have a growing body of evidence of just how broken the system is in terms of authorship, for instance. And this is published particularly by another African colleague, Say, with the BMJ Global Health. This evidence shows what is respected as evidence can only be generated by those whose surnames are pronounceable, not like mine and many of ours again on this call. It's reflected in who is funded, the topics for which they are funded, who is published, where they can publish, and the list goes on. Challenges to this are limited by the access to resources. How many institutions are brave enough to refuse access to funding because of lack of genuine contribution? Not the sort of contribution where you're contacted two days before the proposal is due, but the sort that allows the priority areas, the conceptual work, the methodological approaches, and so on, to be driven from local ways of knowing and doing and being. I can count on one hand the number of times I have heard of countries or institutions that are brave enough to refuse six-figure funding because of the lack of the consultative and collaborative process. Are we ready to really explore what it means to challenge received wisdom and knowledge? That is the basis of the way our health systems run. As an academic, I was able to work with indigenous communities to co-design studies, to work with them through the research process and the dissemination and advocacy for change. This work has not been published by any health journal because we do not foreground what neatly fits into the notion of what health journals consider evidence to publish. But one of the best things about the experience were the discussions about notions of health as commons, that the production of health is a shared responsibility of communities. So engaging in discussions about universal health coverage, for instance, required a different language, a language that was beautiful, that engaged with biodiversity and protection of the forests and the environment. And it reminded me of the conversations with my grandmother, that red is not just red, that our ways of knowing are intertwined with where we are, who we are, what we are, and understandable in ways that probably facilitate how we can actually work on some of these complex topics within health. And that maybe the principles in health policy, for instance, that say that we have to keep our messages simple because people are too stupid to understand them otherwise, do not have to be.
that we can, given the space, advance disciplines that allow us to deal with some of our world's wicked problems in health that may not necessarily follow all of the rules and guidelines in what are known as the core competencies in health, in medicine, in health sciences, and so on. So how disruptive are we prepared to be? I know we're obviously not talking about throwing the baby out with the bathwater, or are we? Other dialogues that I've been involved with recently are thinking about the nature of overseas development assistance, recognizing that the aid architecture is not fit for purpose, that the power dynamic of the donor-recipient relationship is no longer acceptable. All of these discussions are still very much rooted in coloniality, colonialism, and neocolonialism. But what does it mean to still need to extend your hand for help and at the same time dictate the terms on which you receive it? These are questions for which I don't know the answer, but I'm so pleased that we're having this discussion. And I'm really honored to have been invited to this dialogue because I would really like to be able to advance these conversations in the spaces that I am able to influence in order to make a difference. Thank you. Thank you, Pascal. Thank you. I love that question. How disruptive are we prepared to be? Thank you so, so much to all the fire status speakers. Thank you very much for your time, for your thoughts. It was brilliant. I've learned so much. But just to summarize, so I'm going to go step by step as we started with the speakers. So I really liked that Clara took us back to what Philippa said both yesterday and I believe again today, how sometimes we need to look back before we can move forward. So Clara was sort of challenging us and saying, you know, before we go to the level of thinking about knowledge production and all of these sorts of things, perhaps we need to take a step back and we need to think about our own realities. What are our own values? What is our way of being? How do we kind of view and perceive? perceive ourselves. And I thought that tied in really, really well with what we've been saying, that sometimes you need to look back before you can move forward. And then she also did a really good job of problematizing the current systems and ways of being, this idea of Eurocentricism, and then really problematizing capitalism in and of itself as a system, and not just in terms of how it impacts Africa or the global South for that matter, but even how it impacts people in the global North because it's sort of a system of exclusion and so on and so forth. And I thought that was really powerful. And then that rallying call from her that perhaps we should think about turning things on their head completely. So not even recreating or anything like that, but entirely dismantling and perhaps rebuilding and just thinking about different ways of doing things and different ways of being. Irene, thank you so much. I'm a social scientist, so it was just music to my ears hearing you, especially a physician, give such value to the social sciences. I completely agree with what you say. I think we do ourselves a great disservice when we undervalue certain types of knowledge, certain forms of knowledge, certain disciplines that can really add a lot, not just to this conversation, but to global health more broadly. So thank you so much. Then you also raised issues around how do we change the status quo, bringing out this idea that there's visible and invisible colonialism, and we need to really start paying attention to the invisible types of colonialism, particularly in global health and in health policy and systems research. So kind of really thinking about and understanding processes of power and how that impacts on all of these other things. And again, remembering that that is rooted in our history and other broader structural factors. 
and again, really reminding us about the need to recognize the diversity of Africa and realize that this idea of Africa as a homogeneous whole actually has its roots in colonialism. And so we really need to be deliberate about thinking about the diversity of Africa, taking that on board as we do our work, as we have these kinds of discussions and these kinds of conversations. I really like your two points around understanding processes, sources, and users of power to create, maintain, and change status quo, because then that's how we can start having this cross-cutting agenda for change. And I think that was really a challenge to all of us on this call, and particularly your thoughts around the education system. And let us be careful that our education is not enslaving us. And really considering about what role are we playing as scholars or elite people or educated people, what role are we also playing in terms of perpetuating colonialism or coloniality? So I really like that challenge and I take that on board and just being more reflective about that. Then we had Simokai who did a brilliant job of problematizing, but at the same time kind of bringing in the politics around this anticipation or prediction of a catastrophe and doom in Africa and as far as pandemics go. And I really like that you tied it to something that's very current. The COVID-19 is very current right now. It's the reason we're having this gathering virtually. For me, it was kind of mind-blowing just to think about, it's not just about that anticipation of, oh, there'll be catastrophe in Africa and that prediction of catastrophe when, for example, a pandemic hits Africa, but that in itself is a political tool or can be used as a political tool if I understood you correctly, and that it serves a purpose in the sense of it predicts or influences the way even we as global health practitioners engage with the continent, the interventions and responses that we might suggest for the continent. And in turn, it also undermines certain things around the African continent, for example, our resilience, our innovation, our ingenuity. But then I also really liked your warning there that Sometimes things like political agency in this kind of time and space can be used by repressive regimes to cause harm. And you gave a very good example of Zimbabwe. And I think it's really important to kind of bring out both those sides in this kind of conversation. So I really valued that. And thank you very much. And I will actually buy your book. I've known about it. I've not bought it yet, but I commit to buying it. And if you see me again in the near future, please hold me accountable to that. And then last but not least, we had Pascal. First of all, Pascal, I want to say I really appreciated how you started off by stating your own positionality and really being reflexive. As a social scientist and as a qualitative researcher, that is something that I really take to heart because even in my own work, that is something that I'm constantly having to think about. Earlier today, we had a pre-meeting before this meeting and I was telling some of the co-conveners and co-facilitators how as people who are interested in issues around decolonizing and coloniality and fighting social injustice, we must always also be careful that we are not perpetuating any inequities or hierarchies of oppression which we are trying to dismantle. So for me, you starting with your own positionality and being really reflexive about where you stand was really so powerful and just a good reminder to us as people who are interested in these kinds of conversations to always keep that in mind. And then... I loved your takeaway message about how brave are we in the quest for decoloniality and kind of decolonizing. And I really took to heart what you said about would an organization, for example, reject funding because there isn't enough genuine contribution from, say, the local scholars of that area. And 
That's a difficult question. Even myself as a researcher who's always trying to find funding for my work, if my salary depends on me getting that research grant, which again is a problem we need to discuss about soft funding and all of that, would I be able to say no to funding grant if I've not dictated the agenda and if there wasn't genuine engagement with me? So I was just like, okay, I might be guilty of some things here, but then I also need to pay bills. So we need to talk about how do we turn all of these things on their head as was earlier suggested. And just to end with that thing you said about how disruptive are we prepared to be? And that is the question I'll leave with everyone on this call today. How disruptive are we prepared to be? How strong is our commitment to this agenda of decoloniality that we feel we can get out of our comfort zones to be able to move this process forward? And as Pascal said, not necessarily throwing the baby out to the water, or maybe we need to, but then how disruptive are we prepared to be? So I might leave it at that, Tanya, and hand over back to you, I believe. Yes, yes. Thank you so much, Dr. Koy. I think you've really tied the thread so beautifully there and reminded us of some of the cogent points that each of our amazing fire starters raised. Once again, to echo thanks not only to you, Dr. Koy, but each of the keynote speakers we've had in this session. There isn't much time because we're all over time. So I'm going to keep my closing remarks really short just to deeply thank and show appreciation and gratitude to all of you for joining the conversation, for the panelists, for the fire starters, for their really meaningful input and reflections. I remember when we started dreaming about a conversation like this, just some of Pascal's reflections and questions about how brave we are. This event is really us demonstrating a little bit of our bravery in disrupting and creating a table for ourselves to engage, for us to collectively talk about creating and creating space. Caressa's comment and reflection on language and the idea of drawing constantly on decoloniality, centering the empire in the ways that we talk about stuff is really struck with us. In a lot of our conversations when we met and set up this conversation. So we deeply appreciate the honest and open reflections. And hopefully tomorrow we can have a more concrete discussion about what the next steps are. Thank you for already igniting some of those concrete contributions for how do we think about the practical implications for what we are talking about, both within ourselves, but also in our broader communities and the work that we do. I wish you all a lovely evening and I'll hand over to Tanya to do the closing logistics. Thank you so much, everyone. Beautiful closing from Lance. Thank you. Mine is just to remind you to come for day three. We hope to see you back here. With that said, Salani Gatle, I'm Seabrakulu. Au revoir, Adema. Thank you to everyone and thank you to the team behind the scenes for, as ever, showing up with humor and love for us to be able to pull this off each and every time. So from me, your MC, see you tomorrow. Bring your friends, the more the merrier. Let's revolutionize. Let's do something beautiful together as we continue this journey of decolonizing African health systems.